his objective rather was to convince jaded modern readers that God and his angels are indeed real. William, William Peter Blatty was a Catholic at this time. And so he, his argument was essentially if the devil is real, then God and his angels are real as well. And we're confronted with very compelling evidence for that in the case of a demonic possession. And that was, so that's why he wrote the, that's why he wrote the book. And because of that, I, I know you're gonna ask me some more questions about this, Nathan. The book is way more straightforward than the movie. The book almost reads like a sort of fictional work of apologetics. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And for those of you who have been following along for the last several years, you'll know what's coming. This is our Halloween episode where I let Cameron off his leash and he gets to talk about all the fun things that he's wanted to be talking about all of the year. But I say, Cameron, let's save it for the Halloween episode. So in this one, uh, actually, Cameron's been doing some writing on The Exorcist in particular. And I have a lot of questions, particularly as we delve into the difference between the book and the movie. So that's where we're going. But Cameron, bring us all up to speed on what you've been thinking about and summarize The Exorcist ever so slightly for those of us who uh, don't have part of our repertoire. Well, you'll likely be hearing a lot about The Exorcist, period, because it's coming up on its 50-year anniversary this December. It was released, I believe, December 26th. (laughs) So Boxing Day, 1973. And for better or for worse, this film has some real staying power. It's just not going anywhere. I think where I usually start with people when I talk about it is that there is The Exorcist has a bit of a spiritual legacy in my own household. And I know that's a very odd thing to say. So let me just give you a quick Reader's Digest crash course version of this. But in the 1970s, when it came out, my dad was not walking with the Lord. And he was living a life very opposed to Christianity. But he went, along with everybody else, he wasn't particularly into horror movies or anything like that. But he, I mean, this movie, when it came out, was an absolute sensation. And there are still people to this day who dispute some of the claims about it. People were, you know, fainting in the theaters and getting sick and all of that. For the record, I think actually it probably is true that that happened. And I'll, but side note, the scenes that caused people to pass out had nothing to do with possession and everything to do with a series of highly invasive medical tests that are done in the movie on the young girl. And yeah, there's a, so anyway, those, those scenes are very difficult to watch, but so my dad went and saw it and this movie scared him on an existential level. And he felt that very strongly in his bones. He didn't have any time for for God at that point or anything like that, but he very much felt in his bones that he had seen a compelling and very convincing portrayal of supernatural evil, and it shook him to his absolute core. So was it necessarily a totally healthy experience? Perhaps not, but it did play a small role in nudging him to the conclusion that there's more to life than meets the eye. My dad was a very strong man. He was he was a bouncer at that time, and he, he didn't have any trouble intimidating people. But he was confronted in this film by something that exceeded his own power and his own understanding. So this film was presenting him with mysteries. In a sense, it's a little bit like that quote 
that famous quote from Hamlet, there are more things in life than are dreamed of in your philosophy. Hang on a second. And that I, was what a, he felt when he saw it. Yeah. So can I ask a follow-up question there? Because yes. some people would push back and say, wait a minute, like clearly this is fiction. So isn't it a little bit silly to be scared of something that's fiction? And is the counter argument then, mm-hmm. yeah, but the human capacity to dream this up means that there's something else there. So is the re- sure. is that how that works? Well, fiction is a way of relaying truth as well. So you could gain, you can gain. So I just want to put that, just say that real quickly. If you read the Lord of the Rings, for instance, that's it's clearly fictional. This 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 didn't actually happen. These people didn't actually exist. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn very real lessons about friendship, loyalty, courage, and that sort of thing from the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So fiction can convey truth, but part of what, but the exorcist does is loosely, very loosely based in fact. So here, I'll give you a little bit of a background here because this is actually germane to the discussion, but the novel was written by a gentleman named William Peter Blatty. William Peter Blatty died just a few years ago, as did the director for the exorcist, William Friedkin. But so William Peter Blatty had begun as a comedy writer and he was kind of in his, his career wasn't really going anywhere. He was writing these, these comedies and Hollywood was changing at the time. So he had, he had, he had made a career in in sort of comedies and movies, but he came across this story in, in the Washington post of an alleged possession case. And so then when he, he contacted the priests who were involved and they were very, they were not very forthcoming with details because they wanted to protect the privacy of the family who were involved, but they were also pretty adamant that this was the real deal. So there have since been subsequent reports that have kind of muddied the waters on whether that was an actual possession case or not. But the, the important thing here was that William Friedkin was very impressed by this. This, this really, this blew him away and what what he was originally going to do was just write a story about it, almost, you know, kind of a true, think of it as sort of true crime. When he couldn't get a hold of all the facts and wasn't, and when those weren't released to him, he decided to, to write a book, a novel about it. And very much his, his objection, I mean, his object with this, his objective rather, was to convince jaded modern readers that... God and his angels are indeed real. William William Peter Blatty was a Catholic at this time. And so he his argument was essentially if the devil is real, then God and his angels are real as well. And we're confronted with very compelling evidence for that in the case of a demonic possession. And that was so that's why he wrote the that's why he wrote the book. And because of that, I, I know you're gonna ask me some more questions about this, Nathan. The book is way more straightforward than the movie. The book almost reads like a sort of fictional work of apologetics. I mean, it's 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 a well-written book and it it has a good story. It has a really gripping story. It's very hard to put it down, but it does. I mean, it, it it's very much an argument for the faith. The movie doesn't feel like that. So how does that how does that separate how would you separate that out from something more like Frank Peretti genre esque um, or some other ones that have kind of tried to f- to do a fictionalized portrayal or even I haven't read any of the Left Behind series but things that try to put a 
Why is this sure. different? Why does this one stick, so to speak, as a uh, a broader cultural? Yeah, I'm, is, is there a difference? That's a great there? question. Yeah, and a re- oh yes, and that see that's a really fascinating question actually. It has to do with marketing, I think, as well here. That's actually a pretty conspicuous factor because so Frank Peretti's books are written for a Christian audience expressly. Now I know it sounds like I just said. William Peter Blatty wrote for a Christian audience, but he didn't. He wrote that book for jaded readers whom he hoped to persuade. So The Exorcist is filled with all kinds of profanity. It's filled with extremely, you know, it, it's it's filled with material that would basically make it unfit for selling in Christian markets. Now, okay. I do think that's a pretty conspicuous factor. So it has a, it, so it had a secular publisher. And so because of that, it I think it, it reached a dip, very different audience. Yeah, but is one. it well? This is interesting though, because in a sense, though, and I want to hear you spell out how the movie is different, how the film is different. The film had the sure. effect on your dad that the author intended for the book. So was it he did. a success? I think he was. I think he was, and I don't. I'm not so certain that the novel would have moved my dad on that same level. Well, first of all, cinema has an advantage on a visceral level, on a gut level over a book, doesn't it? I mean, it's going to, the, the, the imagery that you can use can be so electrifying. But here's, I'm gonna, here's where I'm gonna say some things that might sound surprising. The Exorcist is actually a pretty subtle film. It doesn't have that reputation. People think of The Exorcist as this shocker. But really, in today's cinematic world, where you have a whole slew of films like the Saw franchise that basically put torture front and center. If you're just a cinematic thrill seeker, The Exorcist is not going to deliver the goods or those kinds of goods, those goods being cheap thrills. It's not that kind of movie. It's a movie about the mystery of faith. And so I'll give you a few plot details just in case some of our listeners have, you know, said I, I think when something's been out for 50 or... years, I think when something's been out for 50 years, you don't have to worry about spoiler alerts. Like probably there's a reason that those no, of course haven't, not. Seen it, haven't seen it. Yes, so have yes. At it. and so anyway, yeah, have it. Well, so the the story involves a a, a woman who is an actor. She's also she's not relig- She's not particularly religious. Her name is Chris McNeil, and she has a daughter named Reagan. Her marriage. She she's divorced from her husband, so there's some there's some turmoil in the household. But she and her daughter are quite close. But essentially, throughout the course of the movie, Reagan becomes possessed and she turns into an absolutely monstrous caricature of her former self and so at first chris mcneil responds the way i imagine most people would respond she takes her daughter to the doctor and they run her through and as as her symptoms become more severe they run her through increasingly severe tests and so there's there are all sorts, and those scenes are among the most difficult to watch, I think, because it's, you know, you've, you've got, there's a carotid an- angiogram, and which is, that's a scene that caused a lot of viewers to faint. But part of what the movie gets across very powerfully without, without having to, see, this is the advantage of not having any, wor- having to have any, any words, you just have the imagery, is that all of these, these doctors with their advanced science degrees and all of their, careful explanations have they cannot explain why this perfectly healthy 12 year old girl is behaving the way she is and there are strange anomalies the bed 
of Reagan starts to shake. She starts speaking with a completely different voice. And if you ever seen if you've ever seen The Exorcist, you'll know that the sound effects in it are extremely powerful. William Friedkin was using some very cutting edge sound design, but the most powerful thing that he did was he had the voice of the demon. It was voiced by a famous actress named Mercedes McCambridge, and she drank a lot of scotch, smoked a whole lot of cigarettes for this role, and she sounds. It doesn't sound so you I don't know, Nathan, if you've ever seen movies where they try to give you a monstrous sound, it sounds a little canned and fake. It sounds like some sort of, you know, effect cooked up in the studio. The voice for Reagan, the possessed Reagan doesn't sound it's a human voice, but it's it's very low. It's very guttural and it's extremely frightening and very effective. So. It's, it's a very powerful film. It remains so to this day. It is truly a terrifying movie. It is truly a shocking movie. None of that has changed. I think it goes too far in some scenes. And so I, I do think, I, I mean, I think there are ample reasons to, to proceed with caution when it comes to The Exorcist. But I also think it's one of the greatest films ever made. I do. And I think it's earned that reputation over the years. But it will, it's, I am not I am not an apologist for this film. I don't recommend everybody go watch it. But I do think it can't it has performed a spiritual service for a number of people. So, all right, well, outline for us a little bit push into the distinction between the book and the film here. Um the book and what's yes. significant about so that. So the book Yeah, so interestingly enough, the book is way more straightforward than the movie is. And this was a cause for huge tension and really friction between William Friedkin, the director, and William Peter Blatty, the author of the, of the novel. So these two had a, a sort of uneasy friendship together. He, William Friedkin had read The Exorcist and absolutely loved it. He was riveted by it and wanted to make the movie. And William Peter Blatty, I know it's confusing, they're both Williams, but Blatty wrote the screenplay as well, and it was, I think it was clocking in at over 200 pages or something like that. It was way too long. And Friedkin took it and just mercilessly slashed it. And part, But the, the real crux of their disagreement, Nathan, was over providing clarity for, for what was going on spiritually. So there were several scenes that were shot. And if you, get, if you look at extended scenes or extended versions of the movie, you can watch these scenes where the priests, in between the exorcism ritual, when they're talking they start to talk more clearly about what's happening. There's one scene in particular that has the two priests talking. There's an older priest who's who's leading the exorcism and then the younger priest, the main guy, Father Damien Karras. They're talking about, and so Father Karras says, I don't understand it. Why, why this girl? It makes no sense. And Father Marin, the older one, says, I think the point is to make us feel un disgusting and unworthy of God's love. So what's very clear in the novel is that the possession, the real victims of, I mean, the victim of the possession is, of course, Reagan, but the people around her are the targets of the possession. Her hmm. mom, the priest, this demon comes out all with all guns blazing at the priest because the priest is suffering from tremendous guilt because his mom has has kind of died alone. He hasn't been able to take care of her the way he wanted to. And so this demon doesn't just starts persecuting him about that, never stops with the accusations. Also, in both in the book and in the movie, 
Father Karras begins by saying, I think I've lost my faith. He recovers his faith throughout the course of, of the exorcism. But that scene was taken, William Friedkin took it out. And I think he made the right choice, by the way, because it, it gets clunky if you have too much exposition thrown into the story. And so what, what you get is a movie that's more ambiguous. And I think part of the strength of that, movies in particular suffer, I think, if they get too in your face, too on the nose. You want to allow the viewer to draw his or her own conclusions. The book doesn't give you that, <laughs> doesn't do you that courtesy. It kind of draws all your conclusions for you. The movie doesn't. And so the, that's part of what makes the movie disturbing, by the way, because you, you, you have to wrestle with what's going on. It is clear that something supernatural is going on. But in, so to put it as clearly as I can, Nathan, with the book, it's impossible to offer any other explanation for what's going on. Reagan is possessed. That is it. God, the devil is real and God and his angels are real. The movie, routinely, you have plenty of critics who have said, you know, I don't think that Reagan was actually possessed. I think this is, I think this, she had a terrible psychological affliction, but this movie is really, really powerful. You can make, it's plausible to put that, it, you're straining, you're, I mean, it's, it's difficult, but you can, that is a plausible explanation. Roger, the f critic Roger Ebert, for instance, read The Exorcist like that, the movie, that is. So the movie leaves that option open to you. The book does not. Hmm. Yeah, so in, in a sense, the, then the book aims at sort of a secular audience and then the film takes it a bit farther as to who would find... Yes. To say to find it palatable is a bit of an odd phrase here, but... Um, well, no, but yeah. I think that's fine, yeah. Holds the door open a well, little they further, have to, I guess. Well, they have to... You have to be able to suspend your disbelief and and it's interesting because Nathan, in the in the wake of that film, we've, we've there are tons of possession movies that have come out, and of course, there's a new Exorcist movie out right now called Believer, which I, I mean, my prediction was it was going to be absolutely ridiculous and terrible. I haven't seen it, but everybody <laughs> has confirmed basically it's ridiculous and terrible, partly because it completely missed the point of the movie. One of the the key champions of the movie is a guy named Mark Kermode. He's probably my favorite critic. But he he pointed out, he said, yeah, the new the new Exorcist film doesn't realize that the Exorcist itself isn't all about the possession. It's about those around who are gathered around. And that's what's happening with that that there all these other people are the targets, really. But yeah, it he, you need your audience to be able to sp suspend their their disbelief. William Friedkin, also the director, was not he he believe he i don't really know where he stood with regard to his his beliefs about the spiritual life he wasn't a christian he certainly wasn't a catholic so that's there's a key difference between mm -hmm. the two william blad bladdy was and he was and he was not but he also wanted a high degree of realism in the movie he want i mean and i would say on that score, he's he's a tremendous success. It's very hard to watch The Exorcist and not basically just say, "Oh my goodness, this is really happening." It's really happening. It feels the movie feels so real, and I think that's part of what was what what remains so compelling about it. And all all of these, you know, all this supernatural activity unfolds in everyday places. You know, in Georgetown, in this lavish, nice home 
with around you know it, it's not like you're in some sort of exotic location and he has a he he shot all of this stuff in a very matter of fact kind of frank style there are some amazing stylistic devices in the exorcist but for the most part he uses music very minimally there's barely any music in the whole movie and he has i mean there's a there's almost a documentary feel to some of those scenes yeah you don't usually think about like what's a good soundtrack for a demon but that's one of their other pitfalls right so <laughs> I guess is there <laughs> Among is, many. is this is the yeah is the sense of um is this a try to choose my words here is this a sense is this an example of healthy doubt or something that instills healthy doubt and what I mean by that is that I think often in the apologetic realm hmm. we talk about doing things that inspire faith but every once in a while you need a disruption sure. that makes you doubt whether or not you really have reality all wrapped up with a neat bow in your mind and so is this something that kind of sort of is a bludgeon to kind of crash our uh, little sacred bubbles of how or or secular bubbles of how we think the world actually is mm, and sure. makes us fear, gives us the experience of fearing things that we don't think actually exist. And therefore that kind of disrupts us and um, tills the soil for other seeds to be planted. Yes, I mean, I, I do think so. Yes, I think that's one of the advantages of, of scary movies because they're very they're by definition confrontational and they often can smash some of those secular idols if they're done if they're done well in our own day i think one of the the kinds of the found found footage films do this a little bit for us now found footage films if they're done well have a way of breaking through for us because they feel more real. The simple conceit of <laughs> having it look like footage that's been discovered with one of our devices because we tend to, we just place a very high premium on what we can record and what we can capture with our different forms of surveillance. So, Blair Witch Project was by no means the first found footage film, but it was the first of a different kind of found footage movie that really, I think, again, that was a film that came out and like The Exorcist, scared people on an existential level. Not everybody. Some people laugh at it and say, oh, this is people just shaking a camera around in the woods and nothing happens and nothing happens and it's over. I think it's very scary, but... Okay, let us let me take some of this and, and turn it in another direction because... So on one hand, you have sure. uh, this genre, if we can call it that, which or subgenre maybe with the, with the spiritual horror that terrifies sure. yep. you know the living daylights out of a lot of people. But there's also then an increased fascination with the spiritual world that goes along with this. So I was watching a little uh, news story about the Ouija board museum in Salem, Massachusetts, and kind of the the history of that whole product. Um, as a you know, as something that people used to to make themselves all of the time, and then it kind of started being manufactured. There was a family I was in charge of that for about thirty years. Sold it. Is it Parker Brothers who has it, had it now? Yep. And they, I think they got it right around the beginning of the seventies. And then um, because this factors in the Exorcist, the guy at the Ouija board museum was saying like there's an explosion of a fascination with the Ouija board and spiritualism yep. and and that whole thing that really so what is so talk to me about that and because we're we now we're at the time of the year in which we're kind of back around to this yeah, historical sure. idea of there kind of being a liminal or a thin space between the physical and the spiritual 
um, All Souls Day and all of that. And so what is it about the thing that terrifies and draws us in? I'm, I'm just saying, as I'm saying, like culturally yeah. here, why why would somebody watch The Exorcist and be sure. like, oh man, I'd love to have my own Ouija board? Well, you're at you're actually at one of the great philosophical questions surrounding the genre of horror. Period. Why would anybody watch horror? Horror is a genre that, and I'll just give the, a very simple, basic, I think, very intuitive definition of horror. It is a genre that produces the emotions of fear and disgust, some variation of disgust, being grossed out, revulsion, all of that. Why would you do that? Those aren't pleasurable sensations. <laughs> and it's the same, by the way, notice that this is similar to tragedy, by the way. The same question was asked about tragedy. It has been all, you know, how does tragedy give us pleasure? Aristotle defined tragedy as a serious imitation of life that produces the emotions of pity and fear. So see, tragedy, so I often, point, I, I'll say horror is tragedy's gothic cousin. They're very, these two are similar. And they both raise the same question. Why on earth would you do this to yourself? And I think it's a really good Let's legitimate question. Let's ask Flannery O'Connor. So, Seems like to the first part, the intersection there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Well, no, I think, I mean, why do people start with a good man is hard to find? That is an easy way to scare off <laughs> so many potential Flannery O'Connor fans because that story is so incredibly horrifying. You know, I, I would always... I would always say, why don't you, if you're going to read Flannery O'Connor, start with good country people or something, because that's good country people is grim, but it's funny. A good man is hard to find is, is just horrifying on so many. It's a great story, but it's terrifying and horrifying. So, well, let me well, interrupt you on the interruption so, that I gave you your on, interruption. Me, yeah, go ahead. So, because one of our listeners sure. <laughs> sent in a thing saying, you know, there's an evolutionary hypothesis behind this that we um, essentially kind of we're we're building calluses to the way that the world really is when we pursue we're kind of like training mm -hmm. for dealing with horror sure. and tragedy in our own lives and so this is part of mm -hmm. a um we're we're building our armor to help us uh, that there's a yep a naturalistic explanation for this i'm going to guess you don't fully mm -hmm. buy that but can you comment on it as we go by i th yeah i don't fully buy it but i think there's something to that actually so ad nuttall who was a professor at oxford university wrote a really great little book called why does Tra why does tragedy give pleasure <laughs> incidentally he does have a couple lines in that book on horror and he basically says now on on the question of why people would go to their local video store and watch these horrendous movies i don't even have an answer to that so okay sheesh he thought horror was pretty much beyond the pale but his yeah his so his, his answer is a little bit along those lines it's we watch tragedy as training to prepare for death, essentially, is what he says. Because we're going to die, so we have to, we have to rehearse these emotions. I think there's something to that. I don't think that's the whole explanation. There's something to that because part of what gives pleasure in a work of art or any work of serious imitation is its, its relation to reality. It's got to be relatable on some level. It has to capture something of human experience. There's so on a very basic level. Why do we love it when somebody can give you an can imitate somebody? Let's say somebody does a, a Donald Trump impression. Why do we love that so much? You could just listen to Donald Trump talk. Why do you have to listen to somebody else speak as Donald Trump? Well, because imitations give pleasure. They're amusing. They're fun. And we and what do we always say? Oh my gosh, that sounds just like him. 
well, what a strange thing to say. Okay, yeah, but you could just go listen to him. <laughs> but it's really fun to watch somebody who's not Donald Trump act just like Donald Trump. So life is often tragic. Life is often horrible. Now, we also need to point out not everybody likes tragedy and not everybody likes horror. Okay, so these are two genres. Most people like comedy. Not all comedies, but most people like people like to laugh. Action, you know, the action thrillers, things, you know, adventure stories. Most of us, you know, that that those have a little bit, I would say, more of a universal appeal. We 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 all like that. It's it's enjoyable to everybody. Not everybody feels that way about tragedy. So in even a great tragedy, even, you know, not everybody likes King Lear. And and I think that and that's that's perfectly understandable because these are very unsparing stories. So part of it is has to be, yes, it's relatable. Life is tragic. Life is horrifying. Awful, tra- I mean, travesties happen all the time. Indeed, life is horrible. Now, some, this is the very reason why some people would avoid it and say, isn't life horrible enough? But some other people would say, yeah, but this is, this is part of reality, and I don't want to ignore it. And certain stories that honor that aspect of human experience are worthy as well. So, there's some there's something to that, but I think okay, okay, there's well bring, more than that. Connect that then to the pursuit of like, yeah. oh, so I want to go buy a Ouija board, like the 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 pursuit, like sure, maybe less specific of the horror and the tragedy. So that has like, to, yes, the the fascination and and the allure, which is very real. So Noel Carroll is a philosopher who wrote a book called The Philosophy of Horror, and the subtitle was Paradoxes of the Heart. It's a good subtitle. He was the first to really give a serious academic treatment to the horror genre as a whole, and there's a lot of really good stuff in that book. And one of the one of his his theory his grand theory of horror is, and I don't think it's everything, but it's it's something, and it, it it's helpful, is that it's really fascination, it's curiosity. Horror intrigues us, and we want desperately to know what happens on the other side of this horrible story. So there's it's a payoff theory. You. <laughs> You endure the vi- the disgust and the fear and get and in you know in exchange for satisfying your curiosity. Now that's not everything. Now for, for Carol, that's everything. And he's I think he's I believe he's a materialist, so he's not gonna I've got a more spiritual read on this, but because I would, I'm a Christian. But he but that is undeniably true up to a point. When I was first interested in horror, when I was four years old, that's the first time I remember being interested. And I obviously, and I was not allowed to watch horror because my, my my parents loved me. I'm just kidding, but they, you know, they were careful. And but it was curiosity. I wanted to know what was going on with all of this stuff. So when somebody sees The Exorcist and they get a very compelling depiction of the supernatural in action in our everyday modern world, and a Ouija board features in this story. It's not a central part of the story at all. It's one very very quick scene, but Part of it is a fascination and a desire, a serious desire for to the thinking, wow, maybe there's more to life than meets the eye. Maybe there are spiritual realities. Maybe if we mess with some of this stuff, it'll mess with us back. Now, I know, again, different sensibilities, different temperaments. Some people are a little bit more adventurous than others. Others, Some people will see that and think, nope, not me. Are you crazy? You tell some people that house is haunted, they'll be like, oh, great. Thank you for letting me know. I will be avoiding that place like the plague for the rest of my days. You tell somebody else, uh, let's bring some cameras in there. I want to I get heat sensors in there. I want to figure out what's going on. 
So yeah. there's a little bit of that going on, that allure and that fascination. Well, we can get a Ouija board anywhere. It's a Parker Brothers game. Let's just get that in there and see what happens. <laughs> so I don't want to make light of that. I, I don't think it's a neutral thing, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's very much the case. Also, some interesting conversations recently of people who'd be like, you know what, I've been a Christian trying to figure out the church thing, and I don't feel anything spiritually from God. So the occult mm, seems yep. like a good direction for me to go because I just want to have an experience with with something spiritual. Um, and so those mm. are interesting conversations to have, and I, I counsel people, yeah, you're going to get the experience, but... Uh, <laughs> sort of like taking meth to lose weight yeah um you know it's it'll right work, i was gonna but. come up with a similar yeah i was like that's a little bit i want to feel i want to experience a real shock of emotion so i'm going to stick you know this object in a light socket is about what that sounds like to me yeah but so there's a sense though that but and, th and this is the like the biblical version of this is that satan masquerades as an angel of light right so is is part of the allure mm -hmm. also yeah. part of the is that well we want it to be serious enough to to for us to feel something, but we don't believe that it's serious enough that it actually would hurt us. Is is that the paradox that seems to be at play there? I think, well, I think, yeah. I mean, the illusion that we all sustain these days is that we can have everything, anything we want on our own terms. And that's one of the central lies of the occult. That you can, you know, the the notion that, I mean, if you look at ancient practices of sorcery and magic, a lot of them had to do with illusions of control, you know, thinking you could whether you can look into the future, predict events, all that sort of thing. The, <laughs> But of course, it's a total illusion. You are not in control and you are unwittingly often, if, well, no, sometimes wittingly here, if you're traipsing into this territory, you're opening yourself up to all sorts of influences and it's something that is very real. And yeah, if you think you have control, you're, you're very seriously mistaken. But there's, I think, I mean, again, you're going to, you're going to have a major draw. And anytime you have a movie, by the way, it doesn't matter how dark or scary the movie, there's something it's impossible. It's almost impossible not to glamorize something. If you've made a film about it, if you've made a, a you know a film that's very compelling and a visual feast, which The Exorcist is, even if it's yeah, because you, you, I mean, talk about adventures and missing the point. You watch The Exorcist, you go out and try to mess with demonic powers. I mean, what on earth did you did you see the movie? But <laughs> the truth is, it's it's a really compelling and powerful picture, and these these images draw people in. So yeah, a lot of that fascination is is a huge part of of this but it's not the whole story i think i think horror also puts puts us in touch with this what edmund burke called the sublime something that is when we come in when we come you know the sublime is is basically you you come very close to you're within you're you sort of get to regard something that's that overwhelms your powers from a safe distance whether it's mm -hmm. you know seeing skydiving, climbing on a roller coaster, something like that. These kinds of experiences let you at least sort of touch the hem of something that could destroy you without actually, you know, going to run with the bulls in Pamplona or something like that. <laughs> but I think so, 
horror brings us in touch with the fact that there are that there's more to life than meets the eye and that there are yeah that it's a, it is indeed a, a terrifying bigger world than we thought you know i think it's nt Wright, perhaps in his book simply christian where he talks about the the concept of echoes of a voice um where you're where you're, where you hear the echo but you don't hear the original voice but because you hear the echo you know there must be an original voice out there somewhere and he, and he's speaking that more on mm. the on the beauty side of transcendence but to the degree that that's accurate do you think a film then like the exorcist is an echo of a voice in the sense that it it's the echo of something that has a has a deeper connection than other fantasy to us because it actually does give us the sense I guess, is this the argument of the podcast? Is that this is an echo of the voice of actual evil? And that, and therein lies its intrigue and its horror, um, and perhaps its apologetic value of saying, you don't hear the echo of a sound unless there was originally really was a sound. So what then is behind this? Is, is, that, the, is that the place that yeah, we so- kind of conclude in how, we're, how this has opened things up, so to speak, for some people? Yeah, so I think the skeleton key, or at least one for for how the exorcist works, is at the beginning of the story. And this is both in the book and it's in the movie. So the exorcist begins with this prologue in Iraq. And if you've, this is one of the surprising features of the movie. The first time I actually saw it, finally, I thought, what is this? I thought that I thought this was a possession movie. Why is it beginning with an Islamic call to prayer? When the words the exorcist appear on screen, you hear the you hear the Allah Akbar kind of morning Muslim, you know, call to prayer. And that, so I thought, what? And then you got a sun burning over the ruins of Nineveh. I'm like, what, what, what are we doing here? But it's actually a really ingenious plot device that works beautifully in the film and it works beautifully in the book as well because it, you begin in this, in this world where the spiritual still, it still looks very ancient and they're they're on an archaeological dig. They're pulling up all of these artifacts from a pagan world, you know, a world that was where the spiritual was just taken for granted. And then eventually we're going to end up in Georgetown. So that contrast, but it's setting up immediately that staunch kind of opposition between this ancient evil as we've known it and then just the modern city, which is supposedly incompatible with it. So you have that just signaled to you on an almost subconscious level here. But in the beginning, they pull out this artifact, this amulet of this little demon called Pazuzu. And Pazuzu was a Mesopotamian god. And the idea was that he was he was the god, it was he was a wind demon who could offer, he wasn't good necessarily, but he could offer you protection. So people in this this ancient society would 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 have the amulets in their homes or they would wear the amulets as as protection. And there's a scene where the the priest he's looking at this this little amulet, and the curator in the museum with him says "evil against evil." It's a really intriguing phrase because it's totally applicable to the Exorcist, both in the book, in the novel form, and in the movie. So, in many ways, this is an this is an evil film in the sense that it depicts very it depicts evil in a very compelling manner. It's kind of almost, it's a fighting fire with fire sort of scenario. You get a very compelling picture of evil that that leaves a lot of people with just alarmed. I mean, I think Billy Graham, when he saw it, said there was evil in the very celluloid on which this movie was, you know, made. 
but the ultimate object of the exorcist is to w- awaken people to spiritual reality. So the aim of the story is a noble one, and I think it does succeed. Now, for some people, for some viewers, I think we have to be honest, the, the experience itself is so overwhelming and so frightening or traumatizing that it really doesn't accomplish much other than scaring them on a deep, deep level. For others, though, this really has, this this film has played a powerful role in them coming to their spiritual senses. Now, make of that what you will. It's a challenging statement. A lot of people don't even think of films in those in those terms, but films are, you know, the various mediums of art will do that. But I think the the basic strategy of this film is evil against evil. Well, usually on this podcast we talk about current events and Christian hope. Here we've rehashed one from 50 years ago, so uh, it's a bit of a a new trend for us, but it's is relevant in the sense that you're going to, and you live in a culture where uh, the the thin space of the spiritual world is going to be celebrated here in the next few days, and um, make of it what you will. But hopefully this conversation has planted some ideas in your mind about how, in the end, uh, the Lord does use all things to somehow bring himself uh, honor and glory. And so if there's an apologetic value to uh, evil... <laughs> an odd thing to say perhaps but it's it's real um but also the sense that when you watch people celebrating the things that'll be celebrated it's a reminder that we are not in a fully modern world that people still have deep fascinations uh with spiritual life in the spiritual world and uh, that's good news there's hope there for meaningful conversations to come out of uh good meaningful conversation about what we believe about good what we believe about evil is it just for fun or is it a real thing? And therein lies a, yeah, good conversation starter, I think, or at least something to amuse yourself thinking about as you watch everybody in their frivolity, perhaps, over the coming days. Um, think of what is lovely. Think of what is good. We're reminded. And so we are people of the light, not of the darkness, but we don't deny that the darkness is real. We just live in the light. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, the podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.